Let me introduce these chaps uh, sort of a little bit, Craig, and then we'll see. Yeah, uh, then we'll get started. We'll sort yeah. of push on. Um, so yeah, today's t- or this evening's, this morning's uh, episode is on on cycling. As, as everyone's probably read, and we are sort of delighted to have two people. Rob, a physiotherapist who's a good friend and ex-colleague of mine based in London, although uh, Australian himself, and Nathan, a podiatrist uh, based in Brisbane. And these two guys, uh, between them, are pretty much, if you, you know, if you have any aspirations to work in cycling and see cyclists and, and work with the elite, and you just got to look at these two guys' CVs, and they, they've pretty much got the CV that you're going you're gonna to envy. So we're, we're really looking forward to talking to them both about sort of cycling and cycling injuries, Rob leaning on Rob for his bike fit knowledge and, and, and things, uh, leaning on Nathan for his, his understanding of uh, orthoses and their use in cycling and given that he's co-founder of, of, of a lab. Forgive me, Rob, uh, Nathan, I've forgotten what your orthoses lab's called, Cobra? Cobra 9. Cobra, Cobra, Cobra 9, apologies, apologies. Is, are, there, are, there eight, are there eight other Cobra orthoses <laughs> labs? Or? Oh, <laughs> It's a tremendous no, joke, no. and there's so much mileage, mate. So I appreciate. Do they still that. make the socks? <laughs> yeah. Do they still make the socks? We, we make the socks. They're the, uh, the, the I'll have you all say Cobra Nine Point Five, the next generation. You know. <laughs> Yeah, so um, to anyone watching, if you've got any questions about cycling or cycling injuries or bike fit or cycling orthoses while you're watching, just ping them into the comments and, uh, and you know, Craig will keep an eye on those comments and and, um, and we'll get to them. But we've got a few questions that have come in beforehand that we're just going to put in some kind of what we think is a logical order and we'll sort of rifle through those. Um, have you shared everywhere, Craig? Are you happy for us to go? Yeah, we're all, all good to go. Awesome, great. So we'll start with, uh, we'll start with one for you, Rob, which is... Of all the questions that came in, the the most most common one we got, and that is, you know, what is a bike fit? What does what does a bike fit look like for someone who's never experienced one, or someone who might be thinking about referring a patient um, to have one? Yeah, good question. A uh, good place to start too, because we can do a bit of a an overall um, view of someone on the bike. Um, I guess it, it's very varied. So with a bike fitting trade, you could get anywhere from someone like a mechanic putting someone on a bike all the way through to some really, really fancy equipment, even up to sort of Vicon 3D analysis. I think at the end of the day, it, it is all about the individual and how well they can move on the bike. And that's what you're trying to do. So you're looking at how someone uh, moves for efficiency. So performance and injury prevention. Uh, optimal loading and uh, and also for what they want as well like if they're a time trialist if they're a, a professional if they're uh, or if they're just a an old lady going down the shops every day and so I think that's the the ultimate goal is what you want it's very varied between different people um, but if we start it at a, a general level so seat height um, I think you want the seat height so that the knee can move within about sort of 135 degrees up to about 70 degrees and just keeping within that in that range seems to be quite nice if you're not overextending or over flexing if the seat's too low you'll over flex and put a lot of pressure on the knee if it's too the seat's too high then you'll overextend and and cause a little bit of hamstring posterior knee pain etc um then you're looking at I guess the the difference between the saddle height and the handlebars. So if you look at neutral, you'll be you'll be there. If the handlebars come down, then you'll need a lot more flexion within the lower back, and that's uh, so. There seems to be a, a big cause of lower back pain is how much flexion someone needs and has to have sustained flexion on the bike. 
Um, a really quick uh, assessment of that is a sort of a straight leg raise. So how much hip and lower back flexion can someone get will indicate how low or how aggressive they can get. And that seems to be a really big difference between pros and amateurs is how, uh, is how much flexion they can get. Um, and they're sort of your two really big, quick markers. But then you're looking at, you know, some fine adjustments of, you know, how far forward the saddle goes and how, how far back um, in relation to how far forward it goes. So if you go, if you bring the saddle forward, then you're going to bring the knee more forward over the forefoot and seems to be a cause of anterior knee pain as well because then you didn't change the so the axis of forces, etc. Similar to, you know, if you're going to do a squat or a lunge or a step up and you do it with your, with your knee coming over the forefoot, then you're going to load more through those anterior structures. So getting, getting that loaded as well. Um, so there are some, but, but that's a very rough, very, very rough overview. And there are some intricacies based on, you know, how people load and, and their, their injuries as well. And then if we're going to look at the, at the, uh, at the foot and the cleat setup, which I'd actually do first, I get the cleat and the foot right. Um, if someone does have a cleat, um, then the first thing they want is a very good, well-fitting shoe. And uh, I guess, Nathan, we can talk more about this and the intricacies about the pressure through the foot. But for a cleat setup, I like it a neutral or a starting position as if you put the, the axis of the pedal sort of between or under the, the ball of the foot or under the, um, the fifth met. And so that'll be straight through the middle. And then whether or not you go forwards uh, or backwards will be dependent on what type of cyclist the person is. Uh, what they want to achieve, and also how they're how they're loading. And and when it comes to setup, um, you know, when, when we write sort of prescriptions for orthoses, a lot of us are writing with a pathology in mind, so to speak. Is that does that factor into your setup as well? Uh, you know, do you set up to what is optimal, or do you sometimes make a tweak for for a certain pathology and say to them, when this settles, we'll we'll will set your bike up differently is that the way it works yeah a little bit of a little bit of both because i'm a physiotherapist the main people i'll get for bike fitting will, will have an injury um and so you'll be setting up for okay how are we going to uh manage that injury so how are we going to change load or how are we going to change things so the person can get better so it's not so much a performance focus however so that's the first goal is to get someone cycling pain-free on the bike and then we can talk about okay what are you going to do to to improve the performance but around the foot um so cycling is i guess you you'd class it as non-weight bearing and so if you're sitting in the saddle you're probably only ever going to put about you know just under your body weight of load through your body so it's a lot less than a lot less than running so you don't get so much of those overload tendinopathy type injuries the most common foot injuries are more i guess over pressure related and so the way i visualize it is we're going to shift pressure we're going to shift pressure around in your shoe and we're going to get that pressure so it's optimally distributed and uh and minimizing injury and also comfort the other thing the other thing that i like to set up and this is becoming uh, a lot more important within cycling is how you direct the force so if you think about your, your crank arm on your bike is you know, going around from zero degrees all around to 180, is that how efficient is your force? So the most 
efficient force you want is perpendicular to the crank. Anything other than that, the force is going to be shot out and you're going to lose, you're going to lose force. So one big role that the foot has is to actually orientate, orientate the foot relative to the crank. And so to, to get a most efficient as well. So I do have that in mind as well as that, you know, pedaling technique and optimal force transition to the pedal. Cool. You mentioned um, common foot issues. Um, and that's been one of the questions as well. So we might come back to bike setup and when we talk about orthoses and cleat, but I just want to bring Nathan in as the, as the, as the podiatrist, if that's okay. Although you can answer this too afterwards if you want. Um, one of the questions came in is what, what, what are the common foot issues? What, what sort of things um, are you seeing a lot of or should you expect to see a lot of if you start working with cyclists? Sure, sure. Uh, Rob made a good point before and probably should expand it a little bit just before I get onto that. Um, about uh, level of load and level of pressure um, through the feet. And I think um, as podiatrists, we need to be a little bit aware that we only have a certain limitation on our ability to affect pressure in a broad bike con- context. So the, the notion that by insoles and side shoes we can take pressure off feet, is, it's, um, it's, it's nice uh, and it sort of works, but it would be remiss of us not to understand that we can uh, reap far greater change sometimes by impacting the bike fit and that has implications back on foot pressures as well. So I think if you're relying solely upon the notion of trying to change in-shoe pressures just through the install rather than looking at the contact points around that, you're in trouble straight away. So I think if you're a podiatrist who doesn't know a lot about um, cycling and about maybe the uh, issues around in-shoe pressure, then it's a good idea to refer or defer to someone like a Robert who can help bring down someone's peak pressure points um, by maybe changing their saddle height or by changing the length of the crank um, to help in a much more broad aspect where you'd be trying to fight in-shoe pressures alone by trying to change insoles and you're not getting anywhere. Um, you may find that your, your level of intervention is limited by that. So whilst bike fit, and I'm sure Robert would agree with me here, whilst bike fit has a lot of murky areas in terms of its accuracies and what the overall setup is, its impact upon us as podiatrists and in-shoe pressure is quite high. Um, and we shouldn't just try and solve all the problems from the podiatry aspect. And referring across to a good physio slash bike fitter is very, very important. Um, it makes good sense. Um, uh, common foot issues. I think like, we have a very unique practice here in Brisbane um, and we predominantly see cyclists. So out of our caseload, 80, 85% of our, our patients are cyclists. So we see very, very few non-cycling patients. So I, I guess in terms of a... a um, of a window or as a percentage of what we see, we've got a pretty good sort of um, ratio to draw some conclusions. Um, by far the most common reason um, clients will come and see us uh, in terms of their comfort is uh, pressure. So hot spots, burning feet, um, numbness. Um, 80% at least is that that's the issue. So people come in and say, oh, I'll ride for half an hour, I'll ride for an hour and my feet start to burn or my toes start to go numb the outside of my foot starts to become sore. So that's by far the most um, consistent pathology we see um, in a cycling context with our podiatry patients. Uh, beyond that, um, the uh, issues more proximally, knee pain, um, hip pain occasionally as well, um, but certainly injury pressure issues are by far the, by far the most common. Occasionally arch strain um, and also the vagaries around fitting shoes adequately. So... Um, probably uh, every second patient we see has issues with their shoes. And cycling shoes aren't like running shoes. 
they aren't necessarily as comfortable or as easy to fit. I can see Rob smiling at the moment. Um, and the cycling shoe market um, has a certain sort of style they use. As a consequence, getting adequately sized shoes for people and fitting that style of shoe with their visual visual um, relationship with that shoe is quite difficult. So someone wants to wear a shoe, doesn't fit their foot, they'll squeeze their foot in there and then they come and see us with all sorts of problems. And then talking them down from that pair of shoes is often a hard part as opposed to um, treating them. But I think if you're a podiatrist and you're starting to see cyclists, expect to see a lot of forefoot-based pathology, a lot of burning, numbness, tingling. And people, I was asked this question last week at the conference in Queensland. Um, uh, someone said, do we, do we really see many foot problems in cycling? Because it really is only, a, as Rob was saying, a non-weight-bearing activity of sorts. But whilst it is non-weight-bearing, the level of load and the repetition involved is enormous. So small problems can become enormous um, over a two to three hour ride or even longer. And there are a, there are a small portion, but a meaningful portion of cyclists that we see here um, who cannot get beyond half an hour of riding before they have to stop and get off the bike and take their foot out of the shoes. And it's that level of discomfort as opposed to, oh, it hurts a little bit. It's that riding affecting pain. So you can get levels of pathology to feet in a cycling context, which can be, which can end their other feet with the sport. So there are some little challenges around that. Yeah. Actually, Rob, just, just on that, say if you've got a, a typical runner who might, say, run for an hour a day, based on what you're saying, the typical cyclist might ride for two hours a day. Is that...? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, a small, a small ride is two hours. Okay, yeah. so... Yeah, so, so that would, no, yeah, you probably wouldn't do it. And, and that's exactly right. And what Nathan, is, what Nathan was saying is that although it's not a high, a high load, it's more of a repetition... Yeah. Um, so you, you get more of this pressure and then wearing down. So even the, the tendinopathies or they're not a, a proper mid substance tendinopathy because of the, they don't really eccentrically load. It's a lot of paratendinopathies, a lot of inflammatory issues just from this constant repetition and rubbing and pressure. Yeah, at least, a, at least a trail runner will get a lot of variability <laughs> that a cyclist. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. I think this is a, perhaps the reason why what we do here has changed. And the reason why we can have a practice this niche based in a, in a capital city is that, you know, cycling historically, it used to be a, a hobby. We'd go for a half an hour, an hour with our kids. And that was like a normal level of recreational cycling. Whereas, you know, we see rec- recreational cyclists in here these days who'll do 15, 20 hours of cycling a week. Um, and that's not uncommon. So the the level of uh, the level of um, repetition and the level of volume being uh, being undertaken by your average recreational cyclist these days has skyrocketed with all these fondos and challenges and Strava, which is an online uh, ride sharing platform. As a consequence, the types of pathologies and frequency of patients we're seeing as cyclists is increasing all the time. So it's gone from being an occasional sand shoe wearing mountain bike with the kids sport to a I've got to have all the gear. I've got to go and do my three hours that my coach has told me to do on Monday. Um, and then as a consequence, we're getting more and more pathology. So if you're a podiatrist um, with, that, that, with that angle, then certainly going forward, it's likely you're going to see more and more patients as a consequence of this ever-increasing volume of most recreational cycles. Yeah, I struggle to find time to go for a, a run, let alone go for a cycle. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> Nathan, just following up, you, you made a comment on... The footwear. Now, obviously, in running shoes, there is an extraordinary amount of research going in, extraordinary amount of tech going in, extraordinary amount of obsession. Is that is that same kind of obsession and tech going into cycling shoes, or is it not um, quite as interesting? I think, 
I think this, the, the running shoe um, tech, and I, I, I saw you mention this just recently on your um, one of your blogs, Craig, about the ride of running shoes, and so yeah. I was just giving you some some free some free marketing there. Mate. Um, <laughs> the, um, the cycle. There's no question that in the sport of cycling, there's ever ever increasingly you know, important attitude towards improvements in technology, not just in terms of cycling shoes, but also in terms of bikes, kit, position and bike fit, like the type of bike fits that we see these days versus when bike fit perhaps started in its infancy is, is, is enormously different. And setups for bike fit can cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars just for the motion capturing facilities and the 3D and the live, live screen. So the tech's improving across the whole space. Um, in, in kit as well, and bikes especially. The shoes, the tech is increasing as well, but it is changing. It is improving. I think despite that, we still are pretty much um, stuck in this, uh, in this carbon sole synth leather upper combination. There's not the same level of shift in terms of technology with running shoes where we're seeing different densities and midsoles and different platforms and different... Um, different heel pitches it's very much we still want to have the stiff like the tech is stiffer and stiffer and stiffer and you have brands that every year bring out and add an extra number to their stiffness factors to create more stiffness so if you ever want to capture a cyclist's imagination just start talking about stiffness and you know they're going and lightness. that's a lightness stiffness and lightness so <laughs> the, 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 the the tech around shoes has improved with like it's they've got lighter and they've got stiffer, but by no means it made them any more comfortable. Um, and I'd argue in some in some ways, cycling shoes over the last twenty to thirty years have actually become less comfortable in the pursuit of performance. Um, whereas by the early incarnations were essentially shoes that were more leather soled, pliable upper shoes with flexibility used to screw into your cleats. Whereas now it is get the stiffest most lightweight, basic apparatus to try and get the performance gains. And you can imagine as a consequence of that, you put a nice, soft, supple, you know, human anatomy into a carbon-soled shoe and hilarity does not the shoe. Oh, sure. let, me, um, let me just touch back on something you said, Nathan, and bring a bit more of a clinical slide back in, if that's okay. I totally agree with your point about as a podiatrist setting yourself up alongside... Um, alongside a physio, alongside someone who bike fits. And as Rob will testify, I send 100% of my cyclists to, to him. Um, but talk us through the clinical reasoning that comes in. And, and it sort of leans on a question that's just coming from Karen saying, how any hints on how we can treat the numbness you described? So let's say the, the cyclist comes in with a numb, you know, complaining of a numb, burning, tingling foot. Wasn't, you know, leaning on how we would consider when we look at a runner and we'd say, is this a proximally driven problem? Is this a distally driven problem? Is this a footwear problem? Where, where does your thought process start? Does it start with the shoe? Does it start with orthoses? Does it start with the bike fit? Or, I mean, question. Uh, an excellent question. And like in a running context, the answer is not always short or easy. But like, whenever I see a patient, um, and I'm, I'm sure you guys are the same because I, I hold you all in high regard with regards to clinical skill sets. Whenever you see a patient coming in, you'll see levels of normality of their anatomy. But irrespective of that, prime, I guess the prime um, basis for intervention for me still is pain, pain or pathology. So if someone comes to see me, irrespective of how their foot looks, I'm going to ask them, you know, where's it hurt, where is it numb? And there's a, from that point forward, it's a case of trying to uncover what is the, what is the driving force, what are the driving influences behind that pathology. 
um, rather than getting stuck into the issue, stuck into that sort of um, connecting um, deformity with problems. So you will see cyclists who come in here regularly who've got feet which look very abnormal and they've got no problems and they've got no pain. So it's very hard to make that person more pain-free if they're already pain-free. Um, they may have come in... They may come and see us because someone's asked them to come in and see us because they've been told that what we do is pretty cool and we might do some funky stuff with them, but it's harder to treat that person because what are you trying to achieve at the end of the day? If someone comes and sees us with that example of, say, numbness or burning in their feet, um, then we're going to try and isolate the underlying factors which are influencing that. And unfortunately, the basis around that numbness or burning isn't as straightforward as one as a one-to-one ratio. So if someone comes to see us and says, my feet, my foot is burning in the forefoot, there isn't this instant connection of, okay, as a consequence of that, you must have a shoe which is too tight or you must have a neuroma or some sort of neurasthesia because I think when you start to create those sort of arbitrary connections, you start treating people all in the same fashion and the outcomes aren't necessarily very good consequence. So there is a little bit of clinical skill that comes back into that process and it's not easy to say simplify that to the nth degree to say numbness means you have to have the same intervention process. Um, but certainly... If someone comes to see us with numbness, the two or three things we'll mainly look at. One would be, is there an element of compression within their footwear? Is their shoe too tight? Is their shoe too loose? Because loose shoes can have a similar issue as well. But is their shoe just far too tight for their foot? As a consequence, is it creating some type of compression-based issue? Um, And again, I think that has been overlooked a lot in the past as a consequence of people assuming the shoes always fit well. But you need to make sure the shoe fits well. Beyond that, if the footwear is appropriate, the next thing we're looking at is, is there any isolated locations or is there any isolated anatomy of the sole of their foot which would drive peak pressure in that location? Is there a plantar flex structure? Is there a reduced fat pad? Or is there some way that this person is pedaling that they're loading up that structure more intrinsically as a consequence? Um, and then beyond that, we have to look at things like pedal location. Is a pedal in the right location? Is it too far forward or too far back driving higher peak pressures? Are the crank arms too long? Someone's trying to drive huge torque because their crank arm is so long they're driving a low cadence. Someone's seat height too low. So it's not necessarily one, one reason for that as, as, a, um, as an outcome, but certainly looking at a few of those key features, shoe width, um, anatomy, pedal technique, bike setup. And again, we're very fortunate here because we've got, we've got a Rob-type person in our, in our practice. We've got Anushka, who's a bike fit physio as well. I'm not sure if you know Anushka, Edwards. Robert? Yeah, uh, I've, I've, um, I know of her. Yeah. yeah. So we have, um, she's worked with the Great Britain um, para team for a long time. That's right, so, yeah. Yep, um, yep. So we have the ability to defer and refer as a consequence. Um, but I think, like, I've been treating cyclists almost exclusively for the last four years and a lot for the last 10 years. And some of these features around crank length and cadence and bike setup and its influence upon, say, forefoot pressure and, and discomfort have only really appeared on my radar over the last four or five years. So it comes down to um, uh, removing your preconceived notions of why you think they'll always have the same problem or same pain and then addressing each one individually and treating each one individually as well. That answer that question? Yeah, perfect. It's good to hear because I often see cyclists that come in with a numb foot and they've been, they've purchased some kind of, um, you know, device themselves or they've been sold something somewhere and, and they've crammed it in the shoe and what do you know, it's all got a bit worse and they've come yeah, to, that's to, a good you, point. to you expect, expecting for one solution and I start saying to them, right, well, I'm going to need to see my colleague to look at your bike first and foremost and suddenly they're like, oh, I didn't really plan to spend this much money. I was like, well, you know, 
it's just that education, isn't it? Um, it's a good point. I think the um, I think that is what I've seen probably as a as a common problem with with treatment for numbness over the years is people will tend to have a have numbness in the ball of their foot and one of their riding friends or a well-wishing colleague or a practitioner will say well you've got numbness you must have a neuroma so because you have a neuroma we must have this arbitrary intervention of a metatarsal done yeah metatarsal done inside the shoes and metatarsal domes are weird and wacky things at the best of times but when they go into a shoe which is already too tight and increase the volume further surprisingly they get worsening of their symptoms so it is really important i think i think from what i've seen from patients coming in to see me there's no question the most frequently used intervention for numbness is metatarsal dome and i've seen all sorts of homemade fashions applied to insoles over the years to try and offset conditions on occasion i'll have some degree of success on occasion, and will have a degree of worsening symptomology. So it's important that you isolate whether the shoe fit is appropriate first. Otherwise, adding a metadata is only going to add problems. Sure, but I'm sure I'm sure Nathan, you realise that that's something that's not unique to cyclists. No, absolutely, <laughs> not. absolutely not. And and it's only going to get worse. You know, yeah. um, I, think, um, I think the reason why metatarsal domes are particularly um, inherently risky in, in cycling comes back to what we were saying before with regards to the repetition of the activities that. If you, you, you're trying to create this lever arm, you know, this foot is a lever arm for cycling. And if you, if you have a semi, a foot which is under load and it's, it's trying to become stiffer to try and provide a more efficient um, propulsion method. Uh, and if you then put this, this foreign lump under the distal um, mets, metatarsal region, to try and offload pain, it, it can be a very, very uncomfortable experience for a cyclist. Um, uh, and again, you throw in 90 to 100 repetitions per minute for three or four hours in a row. And that little metatarsal that you put in there to try and offset someone's neuroma-type pain comes back at you in the, on a Monday morning and says, what have you done to me? I can't tolerate this. So, um, yeah, when used appropriately and when appropriate, they can be useful. But I think there's no question that there's a severe over-prescription of metatarsal domes amongst cyclists suffering from four foot pain. I think I think uh, any any forefoot pain that's considered intermetatarsal neuroma or space occupying lesion met dome even outside of cycling is the is the kind of go to first one. And for me, we we refer to them as marmite or vegemite for you guys. In that, you know, pe- people love them or hate them. There's no there's not really anyone that kind of says, yeah, that felt okay. It's either great success or, or it's you know, like you say, what have you done to me? My least favorite pathology to see across the board is is that kind of pathology, even in non-cyclists, to be honest. Um, the, there's been a few questions about that have just come in, actually, about orthoses. Um, so I guess we may as well come on to that now, if that's okay, while we're talking about met domes. Um, first of all, a question for Rob, uh, and that is, because I know even as a physio, um, you know, you are allowed to give orthosis, right? We're not the kind of people <laughs> that we're not going to, you know, we're not going to stone you for, for admitting it. But at what point do you make the decision about whether to intervene in shoe versus out shoe, so yeah. in shoe versus something in between the sort of shoe shoe pedaling. Yeah, space. good question because I think that's one of the uh, obviously a really big difference between running and cycling is that you do have that option to go in or out. Um, so for for what Ian's talking about is you've got the the pedal, the cleat, and then the shoe, and so we can have you know a normal. Well, a normal insole, which will go inside the shoe, just like a runner, 
or you can actually put something between the pedal and the cleat. Um, so between the pedal and the cleat, you'll tend to get a, an overall movement. So varus, valgus, etc. Um, if you put something in the shoe, you can have much more of an effect on the, uh, on different variables. And that's where I like to go in shoe more than out shoe purely because of, of some of the, the best reasoning of why someone may need an insole or what effect an insole is going to have in, uh, in a cyclist. And that's more with the perception, the comfort and the contours. And because we come back to that issue is, okay. Um, and it'll be interesting to, to hear Nathan's thought on how the, the, the foot moves within cycling. And that's something that's really uh, not well-defined at all, probably worse than, than running. And because we don't have the option of watching someone cycle bare feet and having a look at them, I think the best that we've got is probably pressure mapping and, and pedal angles. Um, and so what we're after is more of even pressure and how well it's distributed the force. And so um, if we can get something within there that can change pressures and if it's comfortable and contoured, then that seems to have the most effect in the, in the patients that I see rather than actually trying to change mechanics because at the end of the day, what we want is, is the foot as a rigid lever and how well it, and efficiently it can just transfer force from the hips, knee, quads, etc., all the way down into the pedal. And that's a big reason why they make cycling shoes so stiff is that they have no forefoot flexion whatsoever and it's actually seen as a disadvantage if any any shoe can flex. So it's this really rigid rigid uh, structure. And so, you know, about two-thirds of the pressure will go through the forefoot, very, very little through the heel, very, very little through the, the, the midfoot and through the arch and whether or not that actually moves. I mean, there's there's no windless effect or anything like that. So you're your goals and what you're trying to achieve and what you can influence are, are already different to, to running and to, to more of those dynamic movements. However, in saying that, um, you seem to get better effects when you have a full, full length orthotic. Um, why is that? Well, I think it's because of the comfort and the, um, and the contours. If someone is pushing down and they, and they feel that contour against their, their foot, then they tend to, tend to be able to change their, their pressure patterns through onto the the front third of their their foot um and comfort and proprioception seems to be the biggest factor um so in terms of then um i i don't do uh prescription made so i'll if i'm going to do something i'll i'll put in off the shelf or even when i start if someone has an orthotic in their walking shoe or running shoe i'll actually say to them uh you know does it fit in your cycling shoe? Let's have a go at that. How does it change things? And then, and then we can move from there. Uh, be, and, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, Jim, I remember you, you introduced me many years ago when we were working together to these, um, these four foot wedges. Were they called low, low wedge? If, if, I, if I remember that. Uh, they were specialised. So they were just yeah. a four foot wedge. Yeah, valgus or varus wedge. You, you moved away from that now and you find that, that when you go full length, there's just much better outcomes. I mean, we'll ask yeah. Nathan's take on this in a minute as well. But Yeah, it seems to be more in a comfort um, point of view. So, I mean, if they have a really, really comfortable shoe and they, they feel good through the, through the heel and through the, the, the midfoot, then we can always go a wedge. But why I like the wedges and um, the case in particular that you're talking about is, and then Nathan made a, a really good point um, about 
someone who comes into your clinic with pain, I think if you don't know cycling too well or have no cycling background, I think the first thing you do is just, you know, treat, treat them like a patient and, and find out exactly what their pathology is, what's causing it. And then we can sort of problem solve from there. So, so knowing that and the, the patient that referred to me was uh, lateral foot pain. And so he'd been through uh, a couple of um, treatment, uh, treatment management plans and all got the, got him, you know, close, but then he got back on the bike and he was, uh, he was not great on the bike. So he was good running, but couldn't ride for say more than, 20 minutes and he had this lateral foot pain and so if you if you think it very very simply is that okay he's loading through his lateral foot too much and on a on a on a bike stroke i explained to the patients because again it's hard to measure is that it's just like a calf raise so you want you know the 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 loading will go through the the front one third of your foot and you want a nice even distribution maybe a little bit onto the first met and then but mainly just an even distribution around that front third and having a good calf raise and a really good um, distribution of force on a calf raise is a really good way to describe it to my patients and they'll, they'll feel it. And then all I did with this guy was throw in some wedges, throw him a little bit more medially to have a, have a look at the effect of it, and, but it actually ended up being a, a really good treatment for him and, um, and, and going from there. The other problem with him was he changed shoes and his shoes were the different brand of shoes was actually uh, a little bit too various. So you just have to watch the camber on the shoes as well is that between each shoe and between each company, the shoes aren't flat. They'll actually various that way. Um, and so throwing a wedge in can bring them back into a little bit more of that, that better forefoot loading pattern. Perfect. So Nathan, yeah, let's get your take because I think it's it's long been discussed that because the only interface between the bike and the person is at the pedal and the forefoot, that that's where the magic happens. But certainly from, from Rob's comments and, and certainly my experience of working with that that doesn't seem to be the case. And one of the questions that came in from, I've lost it now, I think it was from Sean, was can you tell us how, what's special about cycling orthoses? So what about their design differs to, say, a walking or a running device? Yeah, I think... Um, I think essentially a lot of the um, a lot of the ability to in, uh, to impact the foot in cycling context with cycling with those shoes has probably changed since the shoes have changed. So I think there have been some studies around this regarding assessing um, angles and pressures uh, cycling uh, in sand shoes versus cycling shoes, and there is a distinct difference in terms of loading patterns as a consequence. So as the shoe becomes stiffer, the loading patterns change. Um, and certainly there's a more evening out of the loading pattern through the forefoot um, as the cycling shoes become stiffer. There's a tendency to, to drive load back through the first net base of pallets in cycling shoes. As a consequence, I think it's stiffer as well. It's to do with the recruitment of um, first rate and driving it down. So there is a bit more of an evening out of pressure as a consequence. And we've done some pressure mapping ourselves in the lab down in Melbourne, actually, with the physiotherapist a few years ago, just, just to assess ourselves, you know, Going, you know, how much load is there around the foot when we're pedaling um, uh, on, on a stiff sole shoe? And there is, there is actually, surprise, surprise, even some load under the heel. Like, we'd assume there'd be no heel load at all, but in a carbon sole shoe with the cleats in its location, you actually do get a small amount of heel load, let alone forefoot load as well. So once you start to understand the fact that there's more of a platform being involved, the role of an orthosis um, bringing... Um, uh, foot pressures and problems become more relevant from getting a greater platform. Um, 
I think, interestingly enough, like having treated um, many non-cyclists as well as cyclists with orthotic therapy over the 20 years, the through use of cycling orthoses versus um, walking orthoses is far higher. So tolerance to them is much greater and throughput usage is much higher. So people tend to be more comfortable in them than they do with a, a standard walking orthosis. And so we'll see a, a cyclist coming after eight years and they'll still be wearing those devices we made for them eight years ago because they just feel nice inside their shoes. So there is that kind of tangible, as Rob mentioned, that tangible foot comfort that comes from profiles and feedback and uh, proprioception as well. I think when it comes to designing and creating a cycling orthosis as opposed to walking orthosis, you're not looking at, the same sorts of um, parameters. They shouldn't try and create a, a prescription in the same form. Um, uh, Rob touched on the idea of popping a walking orthotic into a into a cycling shoe. Um, one of my one of my pet pet lovers have seen guys coming with their enormous four and a half mil polypropylene uh, CFOs and banging inside a pair of tight fitting cities and watching the pain ensue. But the um, the the um, the ability to impact a foot with um, with uh, a cycling this is quite relevant. So you can certainly move pressure around quite easily. You can load up structures in the forefoot and proximally um, to the forefoot and just even out loads. Um, and we saw that in the lab setting by increasing the profile, we could see how the peak pressure in certain locations shifted around. We're not talking about you know, 50% here, we're talking about small amounts, small amounts, but we're talking again about repetition. So if you can shift the amount of load from a structure, even in a small way, um, over that one, two, three, four hour ride, the difference can be quite enormous. Um, Rob touched on this as well in terms of directing load. I think directing load is as important as, as moving load. I think if you can create a camber um, within the shoe itself with your, with your device, you can then help shift where the actual central load pattern goes to the forefoot as someone is pedaling, and that can reduce peak load laterally or reduce peak load medially as a consequence. And again, primarily the main driver for us is, okay, where's your problem? Can we shift that load in a fashion which causes no other problems and make you more comfortable ride? And then away you go, as opposed to trying to create some sort of perfect human being on the bike, which if you can look at what that is, then fantastic. I'm not sure what it is, but making someone improve their comfort on the bike by shifting load around. So I guess the, the key features, if you like, um, of cycling orthotic therapy is keeping, keeping the volume down. Like you just don't have the space. You don't have the space in a cycling shoe to be creating these enormous devices very often anyway. So you've got to bring down your device dimension to its absolute bare minimums. The reason why we use very, very thin carbon fibre in the devices that we make is that we can get some structure, but at no sacrifice of volume. So you can't get that level of uh, rigidity, if you like, from creating a device from a very, very thin plastic or foam. It will just flex too much. So we use um, uh, uh, fibre to try and keep that stiffness and keep the volume right down. And we touched on this before with Rob. Cyclists like the idea of light things inside their shoes as well. So having very, very light orthoses inside shoes doesn't compromise what the shoe's intent was in the first place. Someone doesn't go and spend $500 on a pair of cycling shoes for the weight reduction for us to put 100 grams of insole inside their shoes. <laughs> so if we can try and minimise our volume by, and still creating that from that we're after, we're fine. So most of the insoles that we'll create for cyclists will weigh 20, 25 grams 
um, which is very, 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 um, very, very light and very, very low volume. And then the tolerance as a consequence is quite high. You can probably do things a bit differently. You can do some, um, you can be a bit more aggressive in a cycling orthosis because you haven't got quite the same levels of foot shape change you would do, say, with walking. Um, you can load more, you can load more proximally, you can load closer to the heads in a cycling context more than you can do in a, in a walking context. Um, but don't underestimate the importance of some of those old favourite prescription variables in the podiatric context around wedging and inverting and inverting a shell because you can get some fantastic shifts um, in load patterns around feet and knees as a consequence of that as well. And I think the stronger and the stiffer the shell you use when it's tolerated, means the impact of any intervention you drive, say, in a varus or valgus context is more meaningful. If your insole is very, very soft and lacks that rigidity, and you don't have that level of, um, uh, of um, effect upon the foot, then wedging it won't be as effective. Um, and I guess that's probably where we find most people have used metatarsal domes, our friends from before, is they'll have something which is very, very uh, flexible or very, very low, low volume or very flat inside their shoes in an attempt to create some profile for some proximal loading, they'll utilise metatarsal dome, which in some ways almost acts like their surrogate arch profile of their, of their orthosis. It's something to rest against. If you give someone a meaningful profile in terms of their contours to try and drive some load more, prox uh, more proximal, then if you add a dome on that again, you're going to get a whole lot of pressure that person's not likely to tolerate. So if you can get structure in there you need to, the use of metatarsal domes becomes less relevant. Sure. Just on that, Nathan, I've got a little confession to make. I actually oh. have a have a copy of this book. Um, ah, Andy, yeah, yeah. But, and I have, have had it for quite a while. But one of the, I remember when I got the book and you flick through it, obviously I, I went to the foot athletic chapter and I, I, I just couldn't stop, I haven't stopped rolling my eyes that 80% of cyclists have four-foot varus. Varus, yes. And, oh, God, and then... You come across websites like this. This is a, a bike fit website. You know, four foot virus, 87% of people are affected. 4% normal, apparently. 4% normal. Affected. It's, a, it's an affliction. They're affected. <laughs> but, like, I, I know damn well four foot virus. It's a disease. It's a disease. Yeah, and I, I, I read that. I, I mean, I know four foot virus is a prevalence of like 2%. Um, yeah. But when I look at things like this here, you can see the, 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 oh. the, the oh, weird yes. thing. You know, so sort of what we're talking about, and I. But this is what cyclists read, and this is what cyclists expect. And I, I just roll my eyes when I see eighty-seven percent four-foot varus, and I, I just, I. Uh, my, my, yeah. The best part for that for me isn't the eighty-seven percent four-foot varus; it's the nine percent that are valgus. <laughs> we've got a, we've got yeah. a population of four percent who've got normal foot types. So, yeah. as a profession, we're uh, we're going to be pretty yeah. busy. We're pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> that level of normalcy. No, uh, but maybe, I, you know, maybe, I, I read, I read and see things like that, and I just roll my eyes. That you just seriously. But, but, um, I think so. I, we have a we have a we have potential in the podiatry profession with the right sort of mindset around this, and the same with Robert Bikefield. If you're prepared to approach these things in a technical and informed light, and try and <clears throat> one of the things I'll say to, who are, to podiatrists who I'm training on a, on a semi regular basis is. Look, really understand the limit of what you can achieve here. Don't overestimate what you can get out of this. So people will come in and they'll be asking or hoping to get some level of meteoric change that that sort of website will drive. Like this notion yeah. of if I put an IT, ITS wedge inside somebody's shoes, I'm going to drive this knee 
this knee location into the centralized and it's going to be neat and tight and it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, that graphic you put up before, and I'd love to hear Rob's thoughts on this as well. It's fascinating because it has this very neat and tidy closed clinic chain notion around putting something here while it will have an effect over here. So we'll put on this four foot varus foot type an, IT, an ITS wedge, there you go. We'll put a wedge under the forefoot, and as a consequence, we're going to bring that knee out. And we've seen it before, and I've seen Ian's, some of the Ian's work before when he's, done, he's discussed orthosis therapy for, for running and how he's debunked these same sorts of beautiful um, diagrams in terms of orthotic therapy for valgus feet and how much it corrects things. But the interesting part with that, if you... If you, if you provided that same intervention for each, for each patient with regards to various ideas wedging for that condition, you will actually make a portion of those patients a lot worse. Um, there's a lot of evidence that's out there uh, through decent quality studies that demonstrates that with a person that same bike fit setup should be given a valgus wedge rather than a varus wedge. Because the, the notion that if you put a various wedge into somebody's foot, you're going to drive this sort of more centralised knee platform. Whereas if you put someone like that into a valgus wedge, you might just reduce some of the potential for more medial displacement. So you might actually reduce the, the travel. You might be able to reduce some of the kinetic, kinetic load around the knee joint. So if you, again, if you approach it full foot, various wedging, ITS various as a consequence will get improvement. You'll get patients who get worse. So you need to, again, get, treat each person individually and work out what's going to drive a better outcome for them rather than subscribe this one plus 20 plus two arrangement to every single case and you'll just get, you'll get poor outcomes every time. I think the flag for me in any of these images is when you see a red arrow and, then before, it goes green. and, the, and the arrow goes green. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think whatever, whatever area you're looking at cycling or otherwise if you see that, that kind of approach you, the, the, uh, the alarm bell should go off um craig can you share that that x-ray that i just forwarded to you yeah sure um, yeah I, i'm sure you guys have seen this before people watching might not have seen it and you know comes back to what nathan said which is expect to see a lot of four foot four foot pathology um and i think uh i think this x-ray kind of uh shows oh. shows why quite nicely uh you've seen this one rob it might have even been you that sent it to me rob actually no, I have seen no. it before, but no, I didn't didn't uh, send it to you. I've seen it so uh, before as a bit of a stitch yeah. up to say what type of procedure was performed in this patient. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's I think that's a, a reasonable thing to consider when you you get patients coming in with with fourth pathology, not just the position of the cleat and, and all of the kind of metal work, but actually you look at the the way that the foot's confined within that shoe. I mean, if that was a running shoe, we know we'd have, we'd have the barefoot runners sort of up in arms about the uh, the way that was like a coffin for the foot. Um, and, and that's just, there's no getting, they haven't made a barefoot cycling shoe yet, right? No. <laughs> no. Well, you, may have, you may have started something there, Ian. Like yeah, patent pending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's more natural. You heard it, you heard it here first. Um, but do you want to leave that one there, Ian? Um, <laughs> if you want to just have a look, because that's not a bad indication of, of cleat placement. So if we look at the, the first met and the fifth met and draw a line straight diagonally through them, and that tends to be what I would or is classed as a neutral setup um, of cleat position. Um, and 
and that's where I'll tend to start most of my, most of my bike fits um, and, and getting that loading. And then you can move the, how would you say, move the cleat uh, distally. So you're increasing the, the lever arm. Most cyclists will go a little bit forward. So as in the, um, how would you say, the cleat a little bit more forward. I've never, ever had any reasons to bring the cleat more proximal. So if you think about the foot as a, as a lever arm, if we increase the, the uh, bring the cleats out towards the toes, then the lever arm's going to get longer. And so therefore, like a, like a ratchet spanner really, is that it's going to, you're going to be able to have a greater uh, force production through the pedal. However, you're going to have to uh, tolerate a lot more force, especially through your Achilles and, and calf muscle and further up. So track cyclists love that. Track cyclists will have a really, really distally placed uh, cleat because they're just, you know, flat out for a couple of seconds and a really long lever arm. Whereas as you get more endurance and come in, then you'll you'll find that balance. And that's just a really quick, easy, simple way to to describe that sort of lever arm force balance through um, through the foot and through the heel. And, you know, I, I had a text before the show actually from a friend of mine, well, a mentor of mine asking about how does the moving of the cleat proximally and distally um, potentially affect power output or performance? And Louise Moore's just from Glasgow has just popped up a, a question here saying um, uh, it's not so much about cleat but about orthoses. Uh, do you ever issue them for performance enhancement or power output? And how would you measure this? So, I mean, Rob, maybe you could take the answer on cleats for power output performance or maybe Nathan they can then take the local that's okay. Yeah, so for, for, um, for performance, as, as I mentioned before, if someone's a track cyclist or going very, very short distances for just pure power output, then you put the cleat pretty much as far distally as it can go. Um, so if you even have a look at those track cyclists coming up in the, in the Commonwealth Games, they'll even have their toe clips at the end. So they'll have a cleat plus a toe clip at the end and they have a really, really long lever arm. Um, but at the same time, you have to put more force in to get more force out. And then you're also going to have to tolerate more of a reactional force from the, from the, from the pedal because your lever arm's longer. And so what we do with the road so the, cyclists is we'll yeah, bring them in. And the, and the non, the non elite, you know, the average, you know, your, your weekend, your weekend warrior, that sounds like there may be a bit of a trade off there, a bit of a, yeah. as there is, as with everything performance everything. versus with, with the exactly right. you're becoming unhappy. Yeah, and the trade-off is, is that you bring it more distally. Um, and it's actually a really good uh, place to start if someone is getting, say, calf or Achilles overload um, and they're complaining of, you know, their, their calf is cramping or they're getting this calf overload while they're cycling, is that's maybe one of the first places that I'll start is you can bring the cleat in. It'll actually bring the lever arm a little bit shorter and it'll just really, really quickly reduce their force through their, through their foot and calf. Perfect. And then Nathan, orthoses for performance, that, that, that sort of magic bullet that we, yeah, look, we often talk about. I think as soon as you start um, uh, trying to use performance as a metric for uh, orthosis prescription, you're in a pretty dangerous place. Um, my views on it is, is if you're more comfortable, you're going to perform better. Um, there, there's been absolutely no evidence that I've seen at any point that suggests that by putting a, um, uh, an orthosis inside a cycling shoe, we increase the overall power output as a consequence. Um, I think 
I think um, it's unlikely to do so for a few reasons. But uh, to use a different example, we've also seen that uh, average watts or average power by cyclists, um, even when we change length of crank arm, remains relatively constant as well, um, which is fascinating. But if, the, if, if that is less inclined to shift power as a consequence for a cyclist, then in-cell therapy, well, it's got a long way to go, hasn't it? So I think my point of view when it comes to um, patients who come in and say, you know, do I get more power out of this? Because, you know, cyclists, they do love the idea of more power. Um, <laughs> who wouldn't want more power, you know? Like, it's, you know, fantastic. Um, if you're more comfortable and you are more relaxed on the bike um, and you are calmer on the bike over a long period of time, then your performance is going to improve. Uh, and if you're not spending two to three hours of a ride preparing yourself for the onset of discomfort, then you're going to be more relaxed in the ride and, and be able to perform better and enjoy the ride for longer as well. Um, so as a pure metric, you know, power before and after, I would, I would advise strongly against issuing that as a, um, as a, a bullet point for psychotic therapy to, uh, to cyclists. But if you're trying to create um, a more comfortable platform and hence better performance from that point of view, then for sure. Uh, and like I was saying, we've, we've managed to create a fairly niche, a niche business in Brisbane based around treating cyclists for problems. So you don't need to be worrying about trying to give patients or clients power promises to get to get um, a caseload around cyclists. You need to make them more comfortable and understand understand their underlying issues. So I think if uh, if a podiatrist was asking me um, what is the most important part about treating cyclists and what makes uh, what what makes my practice more cyclist friendly, you need to understand the sport of cycling and be able to understand some of the basics around cycling to allow a cyclist to feel relaxed in your practice. And if you haven't got that, you're going to struggle from the outset because if if uh, a client comes to see you and the uh, and the patient prior to you is someone who's come in to have a corn, corn move from their fifth toe, then straight away they're going to be like, can this person handle my problem? So if you understand cycling and some of the basics around cycling, and even if you have a couple of cycling magazines strewn through your rating room, it's amazing how much more um, cyclists will believe your intervention and we'll be prepared to um, utilise your information as well. So understand it's not just about feet. You need to have a little bit of understanding about the nature of cycling around it to be able to treat people. Um, uh, you could also have Andy Pruitt's book on your bookcase. You know, that would... That yeah, would, that would yeah. Really yeah. Look, he's... Um, yeah, for sure. BG Fit, specialised. You know, he's probably one of the forefathers. But mm. I think I think we're, we're entering a phase now... Um, in uh, treating cyclists where the level of science around it is getting better. The information around it is getting better. We've, you know, like with many parts of podiatry, there's been a whole bunch of misinformation which has been useful for people to create businesses but isn't very accurate. Um, whereas now we're getting, we're understanding more about what we can do and there's more clinicians who are interested in creating outcomes that are science-based rather than just, you know, commercially based. Um, as a consequence, we can, especially as, as podiatrists, as a profession, if people are prepared to treat cyclists in a scientific way, then it's a great way of advancing the profession rather than being sort of mined back in the old, old days of just treating, you know, people who've got flat feet, you know, which is sure, um, yeah. one of my big bugbears. Uh, I've got one last... Oh, sorry, guys, I've got one last question, if that's all right. Um, 
I know this is about the time that Craig will start looking at his watch regularly. <laughs> so one last question, and it's about it's about leg length discrepancy, leg length inequality. Now the the debate about level of what point it comes significant and reliability of measures notwithstanding. Two part question to both of you, really. Firstly, is is it a is it a big thing within the world of cycling? Because to my mind, if, if the legs are significantly different then that, that's got to affect something negatively in, in one way and secondly if you think it is or if, if Nathan you see a lot of this is this something that you you know because in, in walking running we always address at the heel I'm guessing you address full length or do you address outside shoe at cleat level um now look um I can see Rob looking his lips there with this one um <laughs> we're probably fortunate in a cycling context that if someone has a genuine problem which is based around uh, a limb length discrepancy causing some pathology um our ability to make changes around that in a, in a cycling context versus a running context is much more efficient like we've got platforms we can use that are solid we can go outside shoes to minimize volume occupation it makes a big difference um so you can actually address limb lengths much more easily much much more easily cycling than you can with running um, that said and done, I still believe that we probably overanalyze a little bit too much. Um, the human body uh, and anatomy is by its very nature incredibly um, uh, diverse and asymmetrical. And it's amazing how functional human beings can be whilst being asymmetrical. Who would have thought? So, again, I think it's got to be a predictor for a problem to, or function output for it to be a relevant intervention. And I think... There's still, I think, as a, as, a, as a treatment option in a bike fit context, there's a lot of fitters who will put out of shoe shims to try and shim or lifters, lifts under cleats to try and lift up people's shorter legs and the like. Um, and I think a good bike fitter will, will provide that intervention when he sees a good purpose behind it, functional pain-wise, as opposed to just being, oh, I found something. I found this. Eureka. Let's jam it in there to show how smart I am. Um, whereas sometimes you found it, it's not relevant. Don't worry about it. Move on. Um, and I think the other part, and Rob can do more about this because this is way more his area, is that we're talking about asymmetry, asymmetries and the need for shimming as a consequence. But you have to remember we're talking about like different pivot points here, ankles, knees, and hips. And, and you know, if someone's limb length difference is in different locations, the intervention for that differs. So femur length versus tibia length has a very, very big, dif- a very, very big difference in terms of how you treat somebody. Putting a shim under someone with a femur length difference rather than a tibial length difference can create all sorts of conundrums. So, yes, we do, it, it does happen and it should happen. Um, it probably happens more than it needs to. But if you're going to get um, uh, an asymmetry balanced out through some sort of shimming on a, in a cycling context, then please go and see a fitter for it. I won't do it personally as a podiatrist. I'll always do it because it's a little bit too complex and the outcome as a consequence on the bike needs to be, needs to be addressed and then often reassessed in a platform where they, can, where they can actually visually see the kinematic change as a consequence. So a good bike fitter will have tools that allow them to see what they do and how that affects a person on the bike by doing that. Whereas if we do it in a, in a, a podiatry room surrounded by Dr. Scholl products, we don't really know what that's, what's going to happen. So let the guys with the tech make that change. You can advise that person you found it, but defer it. Let someone else handle that um, shimming, unless you've got the facilities there, in which case, go for your life. What do you reckon, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, 
it's relevant when it's relevant. I think that's what a truism. So um, absolutely. Is it, is it a big deal in cycling? Absolutely. Cause cycling is, is uh, still very stuck. It's changing a little bit um, every day, but it's still very stuck in this very structural biomechanical model of, okay, we've got to get things straight because it is a, you know, when you look at someone on the bike, you don't have much medial deviation at all and you don't want that. And so people are looking for the most perfect, you know, uh, structural model on the bike. And, you know, is it relevant? Well, you know, it can be. And two really good case studies that we had at, <clears throat> had at Green Edge is um, that were both very, very high performers. One was even a gold medalist at the Olympics and he had a leg length discrepancy. But he had fantastic capacity or he had the capacity to deal with that throughout his whole lower limb and actually into his um into his lower back so he actually would hitch just slightly on one side but no pain could perform at the highest level no problems at all he was happy so are you going to do anything no you know not at all you're not going to go chasing you're not going to go chasing that rabbit just to give him a couple more watts of power but on the other hand um a proper leg length discrepancy and where it comes from is also a, a big thing is it you know is it a proper structural leg length discrepancy and i have seen one who he, he like a lot of cyclists he had a bad accident when he was adolescent disrupted his his end plates and um and had end up with a leg length discrepancy um chopped him up uh, a little bit and perfect the way he goes all it was was two centimeters on one side and he's had that since he was adolescent and he's kept that throughout his whole career. And again, you know, performing at the highest level. So I think we come back to really getting back down to, you know, proper assessment. How, how is someone loading and their capacity to do what they want to do on the bike? Um, are they performing and have the capacity to perform pain-free? Then fantastic, go for it. But yeah, I, I think if you're going to chase, try and chase um, extra watts, from interventions, external interventions, it's it's not a good thing. Um, it's just too difficult because performance is is based on you know there's too many uh, too many factors which come into 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 performance. You know even ranging from from emotional all the way to through to to physical, um, and sticking something under their shoe is is uh, probably not going to do much at all. Yeah, I think that the the points from this have sort of been echoed in other sessions we've done, you know, that haven't been cycling related. And most people come back to the same tenets of being a practitioner, which is, you know, take a good history, assess them as an individual, lean on the evidence base, you know, um, no blanket approaches. I mean, it's, it's, it's really no different to any other patient or athlete we see, is it? Um, mm. Which kind of makes, makes sense. Craig, you want to wrap up? I can see you getting yeah. anxious and nervous. I can, I, I can tell it's time to start wrapping up when my dogs are getting restless. But just, a, <laughs> just one last thing I want to finish on. There's a comment, there was a comment earlier on about minimalist cycling shoes. Well, they... they um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I knew I'd seen them somewhere. Yeah, but the, Craig, you, you've broken my heart. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I was, that was what I was going to retire on. That. Yeah, but the key <laughs> thing here, the key thing here, this was from four years ago. I don't know whether you can remember it, but the key thing here is the date, April the first, two thousand and four. This went viral, and and what I find ironic is that I still see it being linked to as though it's real, because uh, people <laughs> want to believe. And, and I, I just find that very, very amusing. But I, I think the last one I want to finish on, and, and I, I see more and more podiatrists offering um, like 
package services for cyclists, um, a, a bike fit authorities, whatever. And, and I, I think the, the, we've got a huge scope to do this and get it right. But I, I hope this is still all right, Nathan, but you did offer to move your computer and give us a little little look around your clinic. For th- those that join late, I think Nathan mentioned that something like 85% of his patients are cyclists. So this is what Nathan has pillar. <laughs> I think it's great in the profession that, especially in podiatry, which, you know, it's, it's an interesting profession to choose, but I think it's good that if we're entering a phase where if you choose to do so, you can do podiatry on your own terms. You know what I mean? You don't have to do what everybody else has done. It just means you've got to spend a long time in an area and immerse yourself that you just can't do it overnight. But certainly it's nice that podiatry can be a bit more diverse than what we're used to. I've got a, I might just show you a, a, a quick uh, screen, a share screen of what a, um, yeah, can you see that? Yep. Yeah. So that's sort of what a cycling, basic cycling off-the-shelf device looks like. Um, Where's the Met Dome? Yeah. Well, that's right. So <laughs> only semi-pro, um, not full pro. <laughs> that's right, mate. Semi-pro. I've got to get back to the main screen. I didn't know how to do that. Um, but it's basically a very, very um, uh, minimalistic device, the level of cupping around the heel is much less as well, and the profiles are different as well. But volume, it's all about volume. All right, I'll show you in our practice here. So it's pretty early, so there's nobody here. Normally on a Friday morning, by now we have a whole bunch of cyclists in here because we've got a, our own cafe in our business. So <coughs> that's what I'm missing. You Aussies, you Aussies just love your coffee, don't you? It's ridiculous. <laughs> So cyclists love coffee and uh, uh, podiatrists who treat cyclists love coffee. And uh, we, <laughs> we put a full cafe into our business because uh, just to save ourselves money from our, our own cafe, uh, our coffee uh, consumption. But um, it's a nice little adjunct and it certainly creates a nice hum of noise in the morning when everyone's coming and grabbing a coffee. So our cafe sits through here. And then separate to that, we have our... I better turn some lights on. We have our... Um, our uh, our practice, which is a combination of some retail and um, and also some some bikes. So for a podiatry practice, quite unusual. Um, uh, can't see any Dr. Scholl products there uh, or any uh, little um, uh, pictures of feet on the wall. So a lot of bikes, a lot of bikes, um, because we do a lot of bikes. We have um, a whole room set up in our practice for assessment and for training. So we have a kitty studio here with lots of little in sort of uh, trainers that we use to assess cyclists and do some bike fitting as well. Um, and also uh, allows our physio to do some work whilst working at the same time. So a very unusual clinic room. Um, we have a... Hopefully it's nice and clean. We have a room in here which we use for massage cyclists as well. So we have a massage therapist who works with us as well. Um, and our treatment room uh, in a podiatry context, uh, we have a similar But um, we also have our ability to... Yeah. workshop for um, bike repairs as well. So it's a very unusual business. Um, yeah. 
But because we see so many cyclists, um, all the other elements that we have in our business sort of feedback into it. Um, and it's nice to be able to come to work in a location where you, you do get to see um, a certain demographic of fit and healthy people. Because um, by and large, even if cyclists aren't fantastic, they're certainly trying um, and heading in the right direction. So um, it's a bit... A bit unique, but it's nice to be able to come to work and drink coffee all day, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> okay, guys, look, th- awesome. thanks so much for that. Um, for those of you who joined us late, we actually started at what was 5 a.m. for Nathan. Um, so th- thanks for getting up so early. It was 6 a.m. for me. Um, the daylight saving changes are, are causing a few issues. So thanks, Robert, <clears throat> so much. It's been a well spent hour. Thanks, Nathan. No and guys. Um, there are a Happy few Easter questions. As well. There are a few questions we didn't get to, so hopefully Nathan and Robert might stop by and answer those later. So, 